The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah 64, verses 8 to 12. Uh, So may uh, we uh, hear the word of the Lord uh, in faith. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Our text this morning is a continuation of the prophet, his great lament, as well as his prayer for God to come and revive his people and to restore the divine city. Uh, it is a uh, interesting prayer because, in my own mind, it's not really answered in Isaiah's time. It goes uh, way beyond uh, to uh, uh, the coming of Christ, uh, who is the ultimate person to effect revival, and uh, as well, uh, who restores uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it is a good application, I think, that uh, you and I oftentimes pray for God to save, I don't know, maybe our children. Uh, loved ones in our family or people at work, and we may never see uh, the answer in our life, uh, but it doesn't mean that God can't act uh, after we have long since departed. It's a great reminder to pray, uh, to pray for revival and to understand uh, how revival comes and uh, the way that God works. Uh, This morning, uh, we will learn that God will answer the prayer again in his own time, in his own way. Uh, attesting to the great reality of the sovereignty of God. Uh, It's my own uh, conviction. I trust that I'm wrong, but it's a subtle conviction that we will not experience revival uh, unless we understand uh, the ways of God and the timing of God, that it's totally in his hands and that he works again according to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, This uh, really is a picture of man before God. Uh, Isaiah, in effect, is saying, oh, God, only you can save us because we are ruined. Uh, And so this morning we're going to look at uh, the way that uh, revival occurs in terms of uh, the way of God. Uh, God is uh, sovereign in the plan, purpose, and the work of salvation, uh, declared, of course, for us in the eighth verse. Uh, But it's also a reminder all throughout uh, the prophet uh, that... uh, Uh, Revival comes from a sovereign God. Uh, It doesn't have to work, but it will only come if he wills to work. Uh, One of my favorite uh, references in the prophet, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, the prophet says, declaring, speaking of God, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, The lament this morning uh, from Isaiah 64 has a personal appeal uh, that we uh, pray to a personal God. 
you are our Father. Uh, Jesus alludes to this passage uh, in his model or example of prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Uh, he teaches us to pray, does he not? Our Father who art in heaven. Uh, God is our Father. If you're a Christian, uh, you are his Son. And we come to him as our Father, not some distant, removed God, uh, but again, our personal God. Uh, we, of course, acknowledge that he is in heaven. He is transcendent, but he is personal to us as his sons. Uh, we seek his filial care as our sovereign. And of course, the reminder that our Father is in heaven is the reminder that uh, heaven is untouchable and unassailable by the world. And of course, heaven governs the earth. Uh, Isaiah is teaching us, reminding us uh, that God must act for there to be revival. Uh, and here he is praying that God would act as father to save his sons. Well, of course, uh, God is also sovereign in the execution of salvation. He alone can affect it. It's the father who dwells and rules and reigns in heaven. Uh, but he, of course, must execute it in terms of acting, uh, in terms of engaging the end of salvation, the end of revival, as well as the means of revival. Uh, in Isaiah's case, as is oftentimes the case in our own lives, verses 9 to 12, nothing has happened. Uh, it's my experience and most of my prayers, really nothing happens. But that's only because I'm a finite being. I don't see God as work. I'm not mindful that he may be at work. I'm not mindful that he's waiting for the time for me to be removed from this earth, for him to work so that he can teach me that I had nothing at all to do with it, not even my prayers. But again, in Isaiah's case, nothing has happened. I remind you in your own life as you pray and you have a similar thought that nothing has happened, I still remind you that God is still your father, that he is still sovereign, he is still transcendent, that he reigns and rules over everything from heaven. And so uh, we, we pray, of course, uh, in humility, uh, looking to him as sons would look to their father. Of course, here we have a reason, and that is that God is, uh, is uh, angry uh, with their sin. Verse 9, angry beyond measure. Uh, and then the prophet repairs to a familiar motif in the Old Testament, also found in the New Testament. Uh, and that is uh, that of the fact that we are the clay and that God is the potter. Uh, this uh, this uh, metaphor of potter clay, of course, uh, comes from the common everyday life, ancient Near East. Uh, you made vessels from uh, gathering clay and fashioning the clay, uh, meaning that uh, the uh, metaphor is teaching us, again, of the sovereignty of God. Uh, here we have two essential truths. First, God is the creator. Uh, the verbal form of potter is used in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 7, and verse 19, that God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. Uh, and he also formed the animals out of the dust of the ground because he is the great creator, the potter fashioning the creation according to his will. 
Uh, the reminder of, uh, of this text is that if God created once, he can create again. It's essentially what Isaiah is praying for. Uh, it's a great reminder for us that we can go to God even though nothing at all appears to be happening, that we can pray to him as our father uh, because he can create. And that all he needs to do is to speak and things, of course, will come into being and things will happen. Uh, secondly, it's an implicit reference to the sovereignty of God. Uh, we know this uh, from earlier uh, references in the prophet Isaiah in which this same motif is found. Uh, interesting in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 16, uh, the nation uh, thinks errantly that they can hide their plans and their sin uh, and that God won't know. Uh, because uh, God can't see. And so Isaiah again speaks of the potter clay motif. Uh, God says to the nation, I created you. How can I not know what you're doing? How could you hide your plans from me since I formed everything about you, even your mind and all that you think? Uh, I knew before you even thought it, before the thought even crossed your mind. It's a rebuke to the nation uh, because of their idolatry that they think they can hide from God of course, they cannot because he is their sovereign. Uh, it occurs again in Isaiah chapter 45 in verse 9. Uh, the context is that God is going to call a Gentile ruler uh, to destroy Babylon, to set in motion uh, setting the nation free from bondage. Uh, the nation is unhappy that uh, God would choose a Gentile deliverer because they want a messianic one. And how does God correct them? The potter clay motif. That God is the sovereign. If he wishes to call Cyrus to come, uh, to invade Babylon, to destroy the nation, uh, to set in motion their freedom from captivity, the choice is his. He can fashion whatever vessel he wants. It is a good reminder, is it not? Uh, sometimes uh, we uh, don't like the way God made us. We don't like our present circumstances. And uh, we too, like the nation, need to be reminded that God is the sovereign. He is the king. He knows what he is doing. And that he sets everything in motion. Uh, and again, that we can wait and look to him uh, because he is our heavenly father. Well, there perhaps is a near fulfillment uh, of uh, this prayer uh, in setting the people free from Babylon, in uh, rebuilding the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but this, in my own mind, falls way too short because it anticipates a greater and more distant fulfillment and different outcome. And we know this because the Apostle Paul alludes to uh, this text in Isaiah chapter 65 in a passage that I think is one of the most difficult passages uh, in all of the scripture. Uh, I'm referring to uh, Romans chapter 9. That's an important text for our own age. Uh, little do we believe in the sovereignty of God today. Uh, typically in our own culture, in our own churches, man is the sovereign. Man has a free will. Man chooses, man decides, and man causes, and man affects. But the Apostle Paul, of course, is going to decimate this folly, and he does that, of course, 
in Romans uh, chapter 9. The context of this and the subsequent two chapters is the answer to Isaiah's lament and prayer in Isaiah chapter 65. Specifically, God's intent was always to save only a remnant among ethnic Israel. How can that be? I thought God wanted to save everybody. No, the Apostle Paul is answering the prayer of the prophet with the sovereignty of God. And that he's teaching all of us that from eternity past, his desire was only to save a remnant among the nation of Israel. Let's look at this from Romans chapter 9, reading verses 6 to 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And then look at verse 27. Again, Paul citing Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. It was never God's intent to save all of the physical sons of the nation of Israel, but only the sons uh, of promise. Uh, we, we learn this from the study of Romans chapter 9. Again, the distinction between Jacob and Esau. Uh, perhaps another brilliant expression of it is Romans chapter 11 and verse 4. Uh, uh, the prophet Uh, is depressed uh, because nothing at all is happening. Uh, He thinks he is the only, only one among the entire nation uh, who has not uh, committed the sin of idolatry. And God reminds him, no, there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Teaching us again this uh, theology of the remnant, uh, that God comes to save a remnant. Uh, A remnant of the nation will be saved, and none of that remnant will be lost. Uh, has a uh, purifying application in the church, does it not? Uh, we have a way of thinking, well, I've uh, been a member of the church uh, uh, for however long. My name is on the church rolls. I've been baptized. I must be a Christian. What else could I be? Uh, no, God is not going to save everyone in the church. He's going to save a remnant according to his grace, according to his choice. That's the theology of Romans chapter 9. Uh, that God has a remnant. He's going to save the remnant uh, based upon the sovereignty of God. It ought and must have a purifying effect upon our hearts. Uh, Of course, the imaginary antagonist responds by asking Paul, how can then God find fault for who resists his will? Look at verse 18. Romans chapter 9, so that he has mercy on whom he Desires and he hardens whom he desires. Well, Paul answers the question from his imaginary antagonist. And again, he repairs to Isaiah chapter 65 and this great ancient motif of the potter in the clay. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for common use? That God is the absolute monarch. He can do as he wills. He owes us no answers and he does not submit to our questions, much less our reasoning. So Paul, therefore, is affirming the divine right of the eternal king to save whom he wills to save and to save a remnant. And the future fulfillment of Isaiah 64, and again the divine right of the everlasting king to save whom he wills. Furthermore, Paul affirms something else in Romans chapters 9 to 11. And that is, God can will to save Gentiles and to make them a new Israel. And of course, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, all will be saved in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is, uh, this is the theology that uh, is not very popular in our culture today. Uh, I suspect on any given Sunday, it's not widely taught in the American church. Uh, we speak of the sovereignty of God, but I don't think we speak of it in terms of the potter clay motif and the divine right of God to elect and to save all whom he elects and to God to do as he wills, to have mercy on whom he has mercy and to harden whom he hardens. But nonetheless, it's the theology of all of Scripture much less Romans 9 or Isaiah chapter 65. And so, revival belongs to him. Uh, he affects it, he plans it, he purposes it. And what he is telling Isaiah in his prayer for revival is that it is not in his time, but it will come in the time of God. Uh, as the great king comes uh, and makes vessels for honorable use uh, in service to his kingdom. So, revival is in the time in the hand of God, in the will of God. Uh, so that's the way of God uh, that is answered in the theology of the New Testament as it alludes to uh, Isaiah chapter 65. It was not for Isaiah to see, uh, but uh, it is seen, of course, uh, by the authors of the New Testament. Uh, let's shift to another element of uh, Isaiah's uh, prayer, uh, namely geographic revival. Uh, Isaiah is asking God not only to come and to save the nation, but to restore Jerusalem that has been sacked and ruined and burned. Uh, and, of course, uh, the vessels of the temple carried away. And so it's not just a uh, prayer to, to save a remnant, but it's a geographic prayer. Uh, the, uh, the restoration includes the geographic references of the desolated city uh, and the temple. Again, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 10, uh, Isaiah, in effect, is praying, God, come and restore the city, rebuild the temple that we might worship the one true God. Uh, God answers that prayer. But I don't think fully in the days of the prophet Isaiah. 
he does in the New Testament. Let's look at three references to the answer to that prayer. Uh, first, John chapter 4. Uh, it's a well-known passage, uh, I suspect, to most of you. Uh, the context is uh, Jesus uh, meets a woman, and he speaks to her about the restoration of the geography of Israel. John chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. In other words, true worship is no longer a geographic issue. It is in the person of Messiah in spirit and in truth. Lots of people in the American church are looking for the restoration of a literal geographic event. Jesus is saying it's in spirit and in truth. It's no longer in geography. It's everywhere that Christ as Messiah is worshipped by the power of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul alludes, I think, to this majestic truth in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, we are. He's speaking to Gentile Christians. He says, we are the true circumcision who worship in spirit. Not because they've been cut in some way because that saves no one. Actions are performed by human beings save no one. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit again, uh, reflecting something of the theology of John chapter 4. Another reference to geographic restoration, a text that we have looked at a number of weeks uh, ago, is Galatians uh, chapter 4, in verse 25-26, where the Apostle Paul speaks to uh, Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. The context, of course, is two mothers having children. One is free, and the other is false, because she holds to law works and persecutes the people of God. And in verse 27, as you know, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1 as having fulfillment in the present day and in the church so that the end-time restoration of Jerusalem and her citizens has begun in Jews and Gentiles coming to faith. That's a remarkable answer to the prayer of Isaiah in chapter 65 in his prayer for revival. Paul is saying it has begun in his day in Jews and Gentiles coming to faith. And the present-day Jerusalem 
in its theology of law works is unbelieving and disinherited. More importantly, the heavenly Jerusalem represents the freedom of the gospel. And Paul says something very unique, does he not? He says, she is, present tense, she is our mother. The Jerusalem has been restored and is in heaven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She is our mother. She births us. She suckers us and sustains us and watches over us. In Christ, we are identified with the spiritual reality of this heavenly city. In the gospel, she has invaded this geographic realm and is claiming all who belong to her. So the reality of Isaiah praying for a restoration of the city of Jerusalem has occurred in the death and resurrection of Christ. And that city, the heavenly Jerusalem, is invading the earth and peopling heaven and gathering the people of God, mothering them and bringing them to faith. Not in a physical reality. Nothing of this physical earth can save anyone, much less a physical city. And that's why the Apostle Paul is teaching us it's the heavenly city. She, she is our mother. It is to her that we owe the new birth and our coming to faith. It, it is, I think, a remarkable uh, application, I think, from the standpoint uh, that the heavenly Jerusalem is peopling heaven. Filling heaven uh, with the sons of God. Uh, the final text are, uh, this morning that also speaks to the uh, literal fulfillment of uh, the prayer of the prophet Isaiah's Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, by literal, I mean in a spiritual way. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 in verses uh, 22 uh, to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Uh, the author, of course, is speaking of a present reality that we have come to a displaced geographic reality from this world to heaven. It's the city of the firstborn, reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who restores the city spiritually by his death and resurrection. Uh, notice, notice the text again, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. How is that? Look at verse 24. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's how you enter. That's how you belong to that city. By coming to Jesus, you come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, many, many people are looking for some physical reality. And here the author of the book of Hebrews is saying uh, it's a spiritual reality. And coming to Christ, the mediator of the greater covenant. 
You belong to that city. It's a city of heaven. Uh, I think that's important because it is untouchable and unassailable uh, by the powers of this world. And therefore, it is able to affect its rule and its reign over, the long, over those who belong to her. It all centers again on our identification with Christ and where he has taken us and what he has made of us. Of course, as you know, the context of uh, the entire uh, book of Hebrews is that of perseverance. And foundational to perseverance is understanding who we are. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem because she is our mother. These are eschatological realities, but of course they have started in Christ and uh, we have entered the city uh, through him and by him and in him and he has taken us with him because he is our high priest. Notice, notice again, if you, if you trouble over this geographic reality, uh, the verb, you have come. If you are a Christian, God in his power has restored and revived the city for you. And you belong to it because of him. The verb is in a tense that speaks to completed action with continuing results. It is definitive and decisive. Get your eyes off this earth and earthly realities. You belong to the city of heaven. It owns you. It is your mother. Your mother is kind and gracious, succors, sustains, keeps and preserves you. The future reality of heaven has begun in our union with Christ. That Christ has gone ahead of us, staked our claim, filed the deed in the court of heaven. And because he is there, we are there in him and will be there. It is also certain it is spoken of as a present reality. And so the verb, you have come to the city because you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the greater covenant. And so think of the prayer of the prophet Isaiah, God come and revive your people. He has. He's saving a remnant among the nations through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah prays for God to restore the city. He has the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a prayer, I think, that Isaiah perhaps in times of deep darkness thought God has put the receiver on the hook. No, God cannot do that. God knows and sees and hears everything. And the deepest, most longing desires of the prophet answered just not in his own time. I remind you, God is not bound by time. He can act when and where he wills. He can affect his will anywhere he wishes to. It's the reason we can pray hopefully and confidently waiting upon him because of who he is. And so the prayer of the prophet Isaiah is answered. God peopling a city, gathering its sons and its daughters. A great reminder, the sovereignty of God in prayer. A remnant is saved, geography realized, and the prayer, of course, as you know, engages the promise of a final form of fulfillment in the second coming. Revelation chapter 21. 
John says, I saw a city, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to impose its will upon this fallen earth. It's all started, but the final form of its fulfillment is yet to come. And that is why, like the prophet Isaiah, we too can pray in faith in the sovereignty of God. God, come. God, come quickly. He will in his own time, in his own way, uh, because he's sovereign, because he is the potter, we are the clay. Uh, we should wait upon him, look to him, and hope in him. So that this morning uh, we come as a reminder in our own journey to heaven uh, that God uh, mothers us from the heavenly Jerusalem and to saves us in revival uh, establishes geographically in a spiritual sense as the true sons of God belonging to a heavenly city. But he also comes to quicken us, if you will, and to revive us in the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, a sacrament for his people revived uh, by the new birth, by the greater city, uh, from heaven, uh, by heaven and for heaven. Uh, the Lord's table uh, invokes the idea of a host and hospitality. Jesus is our host. And we come to receive the blessings of his provisions, not because we are worthy, but because uh, he uh, has made us his sons, undeserving though we were. And we come to acknowledge his grace to care for us in our spiritual journey by his spiritual presence. We partake of his grace because we need him to nourish and sustain us uh, throughout our journey to meet our heavenly city. Uh, it's important to recognize that the sacrament of the Lord's table uh, is very unique in all of the scriptures because it's a sacrament to the senses. Uh, we eat, we taste, we drink and we taste. Uh, but it is not in the senses that uh, the scriptures uh, exhort us to apprehend because nothing in the physical can uh, affect our faith uh, so that we come to partake by faith. We apprehend through our senses in the greater sense by faith the reality of the blessings of our great and only Redeemer. Uh, it signifies, of course, the table does, all of the benefits of the new covenant, including our spiritual nourishment and our growth in grace. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 enjoins us to examine ourselves. Uh, and this involves a proper discernment of the elements which represent the sacrifice of Christ uh, so that we should come to the elements in faith in repentance, having confessed our sins. Uh, the spiritual warrant, of course, is uh, that which is uh, absolutely essential. Uh, on this occasion, on this wonderful Lord's Day, uh, I give one warrant, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, uh, in the 16th verse. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? The word sharing is literally the word fellowship. 
is not the bread which we break a sharing, a fellowship in the body of Christ, in that by faith we receive him. We partake of the benefits that accrue to us from the cross and the new covenant. Uh, We eat and drink as a reminder of our desperate need for our Savior to nourish us, to revive us, to quicken us in our journey to heaven. At Grace Bible Church, uh, this uh, uh, sacramental service is open to all who confess Christ, who have been baptized, who are not under church discipline, and who are not living in known sin for which they are unrepentant. Uh, Reading from the Belgic Confession of Faith, for the sport of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, He has sent them a living bread which came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of believers when he is eaten by them, that is, spiritually appropriated and received by faith. Again, I enjoin you. This is a gospel to the senses. It is a physical event, but it is much, much more than that. It is an event by faith that we apprehend all that Christ is to us, all the new covenant is to us, and the fullness of the reality of the forgiveness of sin. Uh, as, I, uh, as I break the bread, as it is served to you, I ask you to take a season in the silence of your own heart to engage the Lord, if necessary, in silent confession, but of course, thanksgiving and celebration of his grace to you. Again, let me repeat that, it's so important. As the bread is passed and you hold the element and you pray and you give thanks to God and you celebrate him for his sovereignty, you celebrate him for the new birth, you celebrate him for all of his grace and then please hold the bread until which time all are served so that we might manifest our unity as the people of God and partake together.